Welcome to episode 265 of the Mark and Me podcast. As always, I'm your host Mark. Now you may have noticed it's been quite a long time since I put out my last episode. In fact, over three weeks. And in the world of Mark and Me, that's unheard of. And I don't think it's ever been that long between an episode in the five years that I've done this podcast. Well, there's some bad news. I wasn't very well. I had an extremely bad kidney stone, not one, not two, but three, and they caused me a lot of internal bleeding, a lot of pain, and the doctors basically said, you might die. So the good news is I'm not dead, um, but the bad news is I had to really take a step back, sleep a lot, rest a lot, be sensible, and genuinely rest, and that's something I've never done. But the good news is I'm now back with so many episodes to share with you. And my God, this is a great one to return with. Today, I'm joined by Kevin Komu, the incredible musician, guitarist, keyboard player and absolute genius from one of my favourite new bands, Crownlands. This band I just discovered out of nowhere. And you know when you just discover this band, and it's happened to me a few times in my life, where the moment you hear them, you want to then go and check out absolutely everything they've ever done. I was sitting on YouTube and this song came up called Lady of the Lake and I genuinely thought it was an old Rush song or Led Zeppelin or something from the 70s. I could not believe this band were out there right now. But the performance that I saw blew my mind. I saw this guitarist with this amazing beard playing the guitar. He was using a keyboard with his feet. The drummer was singing and I couldn't believe it was a two-piece. It reminded me a bit of like Royal Blood and I was like, this is unreal that only two people are making this much noise. But this is on another level to anything that I've heard. And I think apart from Sleep Token this year, no other band has got my attention like these guys. And if you go and check out their brand new album Fearless, it will blow your mind. They are fucking awesome. And I really hope by the end of today's episode, you're on board like me and you get obsessed and check out everything that Crownlands have done because they are unbelievable. But as always, just before I get to that interview, let's touch base and talk about my last episode. It was a long time ago, over three weeks, but I was joined by the amazing singer and songwriter Rushton Kelly. And do you know what? The response was amazing. Thank you so much. It was one of my most downloaded episodes this year and I couldn't be happier with the response. Thank you so much as well to Rushton for sharing that episode because that really, really helped. And I've seen a lot of new listeners jump on board, so thank you. But today it's all about Crownlands. Honestly, this band have absorbed me. I haven't stopped listening to them. I'm telling all my mates to listen to them and they're all absolutely loving it. So I think we should get to the interview. But just before we get to the episode, let's give a big shout out to the sponsors of Mark and Me, the amazing Richer Sounds. 
Thanks to those guys, each and every month, they carry on supporting me and allow me to honestly go out there and host this podcast on all these different sites, get loads of stuff done, and without them, I wouldn't be here. So thank you, and if you're in the market for a TV, I say this every time, they are the best out there, so head over to richersounds.com. There's one more thing to do now, and it's to get to this interview, and I can't wait to share it with you. Here's me and Kevin from the amazing Crown Lands talking all things music. So, Kevin, thanks for joining me today on the Mark and Me podcast. Yeah, thanks, Mark. It's a pleasure to be here. Kevin, what I like to do for anyone that might be tuning in today and then discovering your music for the first ever time, they may have not been a fan of Crownlands, and hopefully this podcast will convert them. But I like to take it right back to the very start. And tell me about when you were a kid, when you were growing up. What were those first albums that you remember buying that basically made you want to start being in a band or basically loving music yeah what a great question man um uh like confession the very first um record that really uh changed my life would have been cream days american idiot because i remember i was 11 years old and i heard um their song holiday on the radio and of course there's that legendary uh bass um interlude in the bridge and that was the first time I think it registered to me what a bass guitar was. And so I asked my dad, you know, if, if I could get get a bass for Christmas. And, you know, uh, he obliged. And he's an accomplished guitar player himself. And so he taught me how to play uh, all along the Watchtower. Uh, oh, the nice. Jimi Hendrix version on bass, you have. know, which, again, it's it's basically just it's just three chords on the bass, right? It's all, all the work happens on the guitar that makes that song truly magical, right? But just understanding the function of uh, root notes and understanding um the building blocks of music and so obviously uh that just completely opened my eyes and then uh, my parents bought me a music book so i would learn how to read music at the same time and so i was you know learning how to play across buns from reading music and then i was getting into uh you know psychedelic rock and and uh punk rock through um learning by ear and so those uh kind of two streams of music has kind of led me to being the um a ranger in Crownlands, right? Because in this band now, I play bass guitar, um, lead guitar, keyboards, and basically pretty much any other instrument that can make um, melody or harmony. And so um, I have to use like basically all of my musical knowledge to arrange the music um, as well as I can, because obviously, even though we're a two-piece, we're trying to do that kind of symphonic prog thing. And then as far as albums that I bought, um, the first records I bought on vinyl were probably Pink Floyd's Animals and uh, Rush's Hemispheres. Oh, wow. I remember uh, going to, uh, there was like this really, this was before records really took off again. Yeah. Uh, Obviously now they've surpassed CDs back into like, that's where, you know, if you're selling physical music, people are buying records rather than CDs. Uh, But for a long time, the only way you could get uh, records was uh, in flea markets. And so I'd go like every weekend, uh, every Sunday, I'd go to this local flea market and peruse the records. And uh, these old guys kind of like, they realized quickly, like the sort of music I was into 
And so, you know, you know, I remember buying a bunch of Floyd records and Rush records. And then these guys started turning me on to, you know, weirder stuff like, uh, yes, Genesis, King Crimson, General Giant, uh, Vandergraaff Generator. And then you just fall down the rabbit hole, right? You know, and um, that's some incredible foundations. And I'm just thinking now, imagine how much like money those vinyls would be worth right now in the market. Oh, I, <laughs> I know, I know. It's just, it's, it's crazy. I mean, I remember, I think I spent like $10 and I got the the first pressing of hemispheres on the red vinyl and now it's like that's a basically a collector's item because it's so hard to find because it it was only pressed um in canada for like the first year of production and then you know everything else now is has shifted off into um like black vinyl for like the, the rest of the pressings but it's really interesting to see how you know vinyl has come so far in such a short time i feel like in just the last like five, 10 years, we've seen such a resurgence in vinyl. And, you know, you, you can't really go to a flea market and find a bunch of great records for three or $4 a piece anymore. You know, it's looking at 30, $40 a record most of the time now. Right. So, it's so, uh, it's so strange. I've, um, I've been trying to get like some of my old classic records that I absolutely adore, uh, on vinyl and stuff like Radiohead and stuff like that. And the oh, prices yeah. now just to try and get them is like, what the fuck? Like, this is insane it's going to cost me like a hundred dollars to get like okay computer for the first press and i'm like oh damn it like i'm never <laughs> going to be able to do this yeah and i think i'm pretty sure correct me if i'm wrong but i'm i'm pretty sure that kid a and amnesiac are only available on 10 inch vinyl right it's really really hard to find those on 12 inch i think so yeah I, I, they're, they're a nightmare to try and get their vinyl for so i should have just gone for someone a bit more you know easy and uh commercial right now but uh i just want those albums i know you're a big radiohead fan i adore them um i I went to see the smile um only a few months ago in the uk um tom york's side project and i can't believe how good they are and that's his side project i'm like oh man like it's it's you can't have that much talent on your own with Radiohead with the smile. It's like how do you have so much yeah. going on? I know Tom York's a genius, but also like you can't discount Johnny Greenwood because right? oh. I think he he contributes so much to the greatness of, of the smile for sure, man, and and to Radiohead. And I feel like that's very similar to like the role I feel like I play in Crownlands is like um, that kind of Johnny Greenwood or like Mike Rutherford from Genesis of being like the sideman or John Paul Jones from Zeppelin, you know, like that's always kind of been the, the sort of guys that I gravitated towards um, who I really loved were, you know, the guys that were like adding the textures and like um, not, you know, not afraid to ne- not necessarily be like the center of attention, but people who were contributing to like the overall greatness of the music. So that, that's so why I love Johnny I, um, Greenwood, man. Yeah. Like and Ed O'Brien. I, yeah. I was going to say unbelievable. And um, for me, George Harrison's always my favorite Beatle because yes, you know, yes. he, he isn't the John Lennon. He isn't Paul McCartney. He's just there in the background most of the time, but doing everything, the stuff he contributes. If you could solo just his guitar work, it's unbelievable, but you never get it because he's always overshown by, you know, John Lennon and Paul McCartney, the duo, but he's just, he is the greatest. I know it's, it's also so important to re- realize that um, Paul and John, their greatness is because of their relationship, you know, on their own, you know, I feel like they left to their own devices. They were never as strong as they were together. Whereas George didn't have anybody. He had to make everything that is, you know, everything that George did, especially like I'd say post revolver, I guess is 
at least as good, if not better than anything Paul and John did. And he had to do that all on his own without any feedback from them. And I think that's like, like George is the, the best, absolutely my favorite Beatle, man. Absolute magical person that um, there's this amazing Scorsese documentary uh, on George. And that just really, um, that was, you know, that was one of the first things I remember seeing with my dad. It's like this four hour uh, documentary. That was like what cemented George as my favorite Beatle. And um Actually, my fiance and I, like, we bonded big time over our love of George because he's not, you know, he's not usually everyone's go-to favorite Beatle, man. He's so good. We're going to get on, There's man. Actually... We're going to get on. The... We're know. on the same page. Yeah, totally, man. Actually, um, this just this video just um, uh, recently came up where uh, Danny Harrison and Paul McCartney are in the studio, and they're listening to, uh, like, the master tapes of Abbey Road. And there's actually a guitar solo at the end of Here Comes the Sun that they like that's basically just been recently unearthed. And it's so good. And I just remember getting so emotional listening to that. I'm just like, it should have been in the original version. It's basically in like that seven, eight walk down with the the orchestra and yep. then just George doing his his George thing, right? Um I highly recommend check that out, man. It's it's really special hearing um, You know after this interview that's the first thing I'm gonna do. But yeah, man, you gotta check it out. It's so good. I ask this to every band that comes on, but live music changed it for me. And it's weird you mentioned Green Day. Maybe I'm a bit older, but for me, it was Dookie. They were the band yeah. that when I listened to that album, I couldn't believe that free musicians were making that much noise. And when I went to see them live, stuff like Basket Case and When I Come Around and Longview, I, I really hoped that it was going to be as good as the CD I had back at home. And when I got there, it was even better. And I couldn't believe it. Yeah. It was like one of my first ever shows. It was intimate. It was a small venue. What was those first gigs that you, you know that you kind of went to and thought, fuck, like, this is what I want to do? Yeah. Oh, man. Great question, man. Because, yeah, live music is so special because I think um, for a lot of us, especially growing in the, uh, up in the digital age, uh, without good hi-fi systems in a house, a lot of the time you hear music, but you don't feel music, right? If you listen to music on a car radio or on, you know, like in my generation, it was, we all grew up with like iPod nanos, right? That was like the greatest thing. Or, you know, I was like at the end of the Walkman generation at the beginning of the iPod generation. And uh, listening to compressed MP3s on the way to school, you hear everything, but you don't feel the bass. You don't feel the impact that um, that low one can have. And then when you go to see a live concert, you feel music just as much as you hear it. You're like, wow, like the visceral experience of music is so uh, so truly special. And that's why um, Crownlands has kind of prided itself as being a live band um, as, as much as we have. And um, the first concert I ever saw was the Smashing Pumpkins at Massey oh Hall. Lord, I was I'm like- So I, jealous. I was like, oh, it was so good, man. So I was 14. I went with my sister and um, that was the first time they played bodies. I think since like 95, I want to say like at that show. And I think the bodies was like my favorite song from um, uh, melancholy. And it was just, you know, it was just felt like so special, man. It, I think that was one of those anniversary tours. That was like a first time that Jimmy Chamberlain had come back on drums. James Iha wasn't there. Darcy wasn't there. Um, but I mean, I don't know. Jimmy Chamberlain is one of my favorite drummers, man. Like just his left foot alone is like could lead an entire band, right? Just like that hi hat always going throughout all the Pumpkin songs is so special to me. And um, yeah, that was a really good concert. And then like I think a couple days later, I went to see Bob Dylan with my dad, and he wow. was friends. Like he um, he grew up with Paul James, um, 
this blues guitar player who ended up touring with uh, Bo Diddley a lot uh, throughout the 70s and 80s. And at that show, Paul was playing guitar with him. My dad just, it was just like this really special moment where, you know, my dad got to see like his childhood friend um, ripping guitar with, you know, Bob Dylan, who is my dad's like all-time hero and um, it's become one of my all-time heroes, you know, for, uh, by extension. And so just based, um, like obviously two very different ends of the spectrum, but those are like the first two concerts I saw was, you know, Dylan who, you know, admittedly, um, you know, you go to a Dylan concert and you get like halfway through a song and you catch one phrase from a verse and you're like, oh, it's, he's playing Tangle Up in Blue. I didn't realize it because he'll change the arrangement and the melody like just on the fly. And um, it's, you know, he will, uh, he does not honor the, uh, the record the way that a lot of other artists do. And I kind of like that about Dylan. Uh, whereas, you know, the Pumpkins will would kind of go, um by rote of the record and they'd reproduce like a studio recording nearly perfectly. And so it was cool to see like um, how artists pr um, approach their live show uh, so differently, you know? It's incredible. I mean, Siamese Dream is one of my favorite albums of all time. Uh, yeah, man. You know, so there's, there's not a bad song on there. And they're one of the first bands I listened to. I remember having MTV two and sitting there with my dad late at night and watching them and I could stay up and watch it. And that's when they used to have really good music videos. And I remember seeing the video for Tonight Tonight, and it was like a theater yeah. production. And I was like, I miss the days when so much thought and time and budget went into a music video. And I know it's different now with the industry, but they used to be absolute masterpieces, like work of art. Even their videos for stuff like 1979, when they're just bumming around with like a big tire. It's just awesome yeah. videos, and I just well, you can, yeah, you can see that you know uh, tonight tonight was the lead uh, video that you know, and then 1979 was at the end of the album cycle when they ran out of the budget. And they're like, oh, definitely, what do we do? <laughs> grab the Super Eight cameras and just roll with it for a day, you know. So it's uh, but yeah, I love the tonight tonight music video, man. That made a huge impact on me, uh, and all that kind of um, that the theatrical approach and um, like the artistic approach, definitely. Um, kind of shines through in our music like i don't know if you've seen our music video uh for context fearless part one but we kind of um we really wanted to pull um just as much lord of the rings as, as much as um like star wars and star trek you know basically blending high fantasy with uh hard sci-fi and we kind of like you know we um envisioned this world um you know like hundreds of years in the future and cody and i basically play these um, interstellar musical delegates that bring uh, music to this society that's been like kind of like eclipsed by war and um, the world that we developed for that music video uh, with the director Blake Moss and we ended up kind of uh, revisiting that cinematic world uh, a few more times throughout like different songs like the Oracle and um, Starlifter uh, Fearless Part 2 so if you haven't seen that video and you're into the pumpkins and you're into like that more like um, um richer approach to music videos you should check uh you should check out context for sure dude you know i will so i mean this is foundations you're building on here you know seeing bob dylan the pumpkins some of those early albums you've listened to they're such strong foundations to build upon and i suppose at that point talk to me like what age was it you were like i want to make a career out of music i want to go out there and i want to be in a band you know because i say this to everyone i keep repeating myself but i think it's so important 
when you turn around to your parents and you say, mom, dad, I want to be in a band, you know, or I'm going to go out there and I'm really going to make a name for myself in the music industry. It's like, okay, son, like you're not going to be the next Kurt Cobain, like get a proper job and then hopefully you can do this at the side. But was your family in full support or were you just kind of like out to try and prove a point or how did it all come about for you? Yeah. Good question, man. Uh, my parents were really supportive and I think I, um, I, I owe a lot of, um, what, what, you know, what success we've seen to my parents being really supportive and like understanding the, um, the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows of the music industry. But, uh, there was basically a, a big clinching point where, um, you know, at the end of high school, um, my parents were very encouraging, but they also, um, they wanted me to go and have a backup plan like most parents do understandably because my sister is very responsible she's very buttoned down she's a couple years older than me and she's actually in um uh in federal politics now right and so she is uh uh not on the partisan side like in the administration side and yeah. she's you know she's crushing it so she's very buttoned down very responsible uh and i you know she's always led with her head and i've always been more um off the cuff and led with my heart. And uh, so I decided I was going to go to university and study classical music. And in Canada, it's not as bad as the States for uh, tuition costs, but uh, it is significantly expensive, right? And it's it's kind of messed up where, you know, you're looking at us like, am I going to go $100,000 into debt for a degree? And, you know, you have to look at your education as, um, as an investment to get a job rather than a way to better yourself as a human being, which is a bit of a shame. Um, but regardless, I decided I was going to go and get myself a fancy classic music degree. And so I went to university and I studied for a year and I think I just read too much Jack Kerouac. And um, after a year I dropped out and I, I hitchhiked from uh, Toronto to Los Angeles and it took me about a month. Um, and my parents were actually kind of supportive because at first I was like, yeah, I'm just going to take the summer off and I'm just going to go, um, just going to go to California and back. And my parents were very understanding, very supportive. And, um, so I, I hitchhiked to LA, but the day I got there, I ended up meeting this reggae band in a music store. And, uh, I, you know, we ended up getting to talking and, uh, they needed a keyboard player to sit in with them at a gig that night. And so I sat in with them and I, they liked me enough and they invited me uh, back to their place. And I ended up crashing on their couch for like six months. And I played with these guys. We ended up playing the whiskey, a go-go. We did uh, a bunch of really cool gigs on the stage on uh, Venice beach. I remember, you know, playing this band, watching the sunset over the Pacific ocean multiple times. I was like, yep, this is it. This is, you know, I've, I've made it so to speak. And um, that was just as important to my music education as actually going to school. And, um, you know, being able to sit in with a band and um, hear the singer call out the key of a song and having to just figure it out right then and there, just as much as sitting down and analyzing voice leading, you know, for a uh, for a choral piece. And um, obviously, uh, the downside of that, though, is um, in the States, uh, you can only stay there for six months at a time if you don't have uh, the proper work permits. And I did not. And so I ended up having to go back home for uh, the holidays to figure out all of my uh, my paperwork because I wanted the first thing I just want to do is go back and um, just keep working on music in California. Um, but as luck should have it, like a couple days after I got home, I met Cody, uh, where um, 
a buddy of mine was auditioning for a band that Cody was playing in dr- playing drums in and uh, they were looking for a guitar player and I didn't even play guitar at that point. I was a bass player and a keyboard player. Uh, but I crashed the audition and uh, got along so well with Cody and I uh, ended up learning guitar to play in this band. And um, that band didn't end up working out, but Cody and I stayed in touch. Um, and a couple of years later, we made Crownlands and now we've just been at it for going on eight years. So sometimes luck should have it. You just, you know, you chase your, uh, you chase the muse and see where it takes you. That's amazing. And eight years, and it doesn't sound long, but it is still long in the way that some bands fizzle out after kind of two or three albums and find quite a... I think people don't anticipate how much work's involved and with touring and writing and going out there and all the travel and trying to have that work-life balance, especially if there's children involved or families and wives, etc. But you guys have been going eight years and it seems like you're more hungry than ever. It's not like you're getting fatigued or starting to, you know, there's any cracks. You're kind of, I'm sure you've still got yeah, all these, I mean, you know, I, huge... Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, mean, I think it's just like the pandemic has, like, you know, interrupted such a, you know, like th- that point, you know, we were about to go on tour all across the world. And, uh, we, you know, we had uh, our debut record uh, set to come out and then ended up coming out throughout the pandemic. And so it kind of felt like we were starting at square one after so many years of like teeing up and teeing up for the big international launch. And then it was like, Oh, and then we had to pull back and regroup, which uh, hurt us, but also helped us because it allowed us to kind of make uh, our white Buffalo record and this new record coming out called fearless, which I think is like the best piece of music we've made so far. So it's like, um, in a lot of ways, it feels like we're just beginning, man. You know, obviously I know a lot of bands their shelf life's only five, six years. I mean, look at the Beatles, man. That, you know, they were only around for, what, seven years, and they basically changed the face of music, you know. Um, but I think um, we've taken it a lot slower. Also, just being a Canadian band means, you know, um, it's a much slower rise than you would see uh, in the UK or, or the States, just, just by way of there's not a lot of people here, and the media is just so significantly different. Um, but, you know, yeah, we definitely are um, hungrier than ever, dude. I love hearing that your um your new album is your favorite and the you know kind of your personal best work you're putting out like that's that's a good sign isn't it definitely but it feels like our best work is still ahead of us you know I feel like we've really um found our voice and we found like our niche audience as well where um you know we finally let our freak flag fly high on this record where we're opening it up with an 18 minute space opera um which is something that our favorite bands were doing, you know, like Close to the Edge by Yes or 2112 by Rush were like the, you know, two of the biggest um, influences uh, to that piece of music, I'd say. And so the fact that we're able to kind of um, carry that that prog torch forward feels really, really good. Um, And I just want to keep doing that kind of stuff, you know, of making music that I wanted to hear when I was um, 16 years old and discovering and crimson and genesis and all those guys right so um modern music didn't really scratch that itch for me at that point so i really want to be that band that might you know capture the imaginations of uh, a new generation of people who haven't really gotten into prog yet and i think it's strange because you know you mentioned some great bands today and bands like yes you know one of my favorite tracks ever is roundabout i know it's one of their most common tracks but 
that just is a whole journey. Like it just blows my mind all the signature and the time changes and everything else that goes with it. I just can't believe that's all one song. It's just absolutely unbelievable. But you mentioned Rush and I was lucky enough to see them about 10 years ago. I still can't think of another band that blew my mind as much as those live. I just, they were yeah. unbelievable. Um, so to see how much you kind of put them in high regard and look up to, and they're kind of your inspiration. Yeah. It doesn't get much as, better, does it? Yeah, totally. Not just as musicians, but as people, right? You know, they, they were able to remain close friends for over 40 years. And again, as you said, right, music industry is not easy place for people to like maintain friendships because you have to break down each other's egos and hurt each other's feelings on a daily basis in a band. You know, you have to be like, great idea. Not good enough. Let's yeah. keep going. <laughs> you know, like yeah, when you're it's brutal. Music or, yeah. Or it's just like, I want, you know, it's like little, in like little arguments, petty arguments that can add up. Like, I want the record to be blue. I want it to be red. And I was like, oh, well, I see that we are not going to comfort. You know, it's like little things like that can add up. So the fact that those guys were able to remain friends over such a long period of time is um is commendable and that's something that uh cody and i like look up to it just as much as we do in the music is you know trying to um maintain our friendship as much as being musical partners which is it's not always easy man i mean having a dynamic of just two of you at least it's not more personalities and more egos and more people to yeah. try and compromise so it's always two of you and a band that I'm a massive fan of and they've blown up in the UK on another level is Royal Blood. Um, yeah, those guys are great. You know, absolutely awesome band. And I know it sounds really strange, but it it doesn't feel like there's been that many two pieces over here in the UK that have blown up like that. Um, I can't remember for years since a two piece has just come along and just hmm. put on a performance that could headline a festival. Um, and bands like uh, Death From Above, you know, absolutely yeah, unbelievable yeah. um so i suppose at least there's only you and one other that you need to consider so if there's gonna be a fight if it's red or blue at least there's not a yellow and a green and an orange yeah yeah that's true that's true man yeah i think uh the only issue is there's no tiebreaker and so a lot of time we'll, we'll bring our poor long-suffering manager ollie who's also from brighton just like uh royal flood um He's uh he gets dragged into a lot of the tie tie breaking stuff and I don't know if uh that's the best the course of action a lot of the time but I mean, um, you know, poor man uh, does a lot for us. So. so what is it looking like now with obviously the pandemic out of the way? I know that had a massive dent on something that can be so good and you had this kind of progression and this kind of you know this upward journey that kind of then gets put on pause which fucking sucks for musicians i was saying this to someone the other day i think bands got hit harder than anyone because it's not like you could do your job from home you know it's not like you could just yep. tour in your bedroom um i take it so now you're just wanting you know, to get out there and gig and yeah. do as much as you can to make up for lost time we want to but again the world has changed so much mark like um it's just so much more expensive to tour yeah. Uh, than it was you know and so it's like our guarantees um or like you know the, the money we get from a show have not gone up two or three times but our costs have and um you know it was barely um we were barely breaking even up you know beforehand so looking at our uh touring right now um as as fun as it can be um 
it's so expensive so you know it, like touring which used to be the only way a musician could make money we're seeing that most musicians are in fact losing money on tour uh for over the last year or so so i think we're seeing um a lot of bands canceling their tours not not because of covid but just because they're looking at like gas hotel crew wages you know food and it's like no like it doesn't work right and so in fact we, we you know we've had a couple moments where our team has taken us aside and been like you guys are going to lose 10 or twenty thousand dollars on this tour you should probably not do it and then it's like that old school saying of like well gotta get out there and and you know meet the people and play the songs and like if those songs were good enough to record they just get better and better and better as you play them live, right? Like night after night, you find little new intricacies and they take on a whole new life after you've played a song like a hundred times on a tour. And so, you know, this tour we're doing right now, we're going across Canada and we're losing money on that tour, uh, but not as much as we would if we were doing a UK tour, or, um, um, an American tour. So I think that um, right now we're only seeing like the upper echelon of bands being able to tour really and make money right bands that like are are seeing that like once you get into arena status the margins open up a little bit but you know for us when we're you know we're doing like 500 cap clubs or thousand cap theaters kind of thing right we're doing fairly small rooms and right now those margins just mean like <laughs> we're just going out and hemorrhaging money uh but at the end of the day you have to look at it as an investment right and it's like again starting at square one where if you open up to small business you lose money the first five years or so right your margins don't go into the black until you know five six years in and because of covid we're basically starting again at square one you know at least financially speaking so it can be intimidating obviously luckily festivals you know pay us a bit more so we can kind of make up the difference at the on the back end later on in the year but it's scary man you know like uh <laughs> it's, it's, it's not the dream is it that everyone kind of sees and i think some people that aren't in the industry or are in a band that are just starting out it isn't like it used to be you're not going to be millionaires from selling millions of records and people queuing up mm -hmm. outside to get a signed vinyl it's just so ruthless out there and over in the UK at the moment, there's a bit of talk because, you know, venues are taking quite a lot from the merch. Um, yeah. And yeah. A, a great band, Gajira, are getting criticized because they're charging £40 for a T-shirt. But it's like they have to get a whole crew over here. They have to pay all the riders, yeah. all the crew that go along, the sound desk, the engineer, all the staff. And it's like, and they're probably not even seeing that much profit from that. But it's, no. it's not, it's not I, the artist is... life, is it? No, I think that's a good point where it's like the artist is usually the one to take the brunt for that. And an artist is expected to take the loss. And it's like, well, I'm a fan, so I don't want to pay the 40 you know, quid for the shirt. You know, well, can't you, you know, help me out because I want to support you? And it's like, well, <laughs> you know, the artist is, is always going to be the one to kind of take the brunt, it, it seems. Um, and that's that's the reality of, um, you know. The world we're in you know the music industry is the perfect microcosm of capitalism at a whole man it's you know the artist is the only one creating the content that is being sold and the artist is the last one to get paid very much like the worker who produces the goods makes the least amount of money you know so it's just <laughs> it's just the reality uh that we live in 
And I think we are seeing artists be able to have a bit more control of that. You know, we're seeing um, a shift in like, you know, direct to consumer sales, you know, where um, we run our own merch store and that's the really the only way we see money um, yeah. is for merch sales. And so, um, and a lot of the time, yeah, when you're, you're, you're playing a show, the venue or the promoter is taking 20% gross from your merch sales. And, you know, and that's not fact, you know, factoring in, uh, you know, management commissions that you have to factor in as well. Um, and you have to factor in the cost of um, producing the goods and a lot of the time, the cost of shipping the goods and then shipping the goods a second or third time because it didn't get to the right venue on time because of the uh, logistical nightmare that we're in in a post-COVID world where the entire world um, has shifted into uh, shipped goods, right? You know, look at um, like basically overnight two years ago, we went from going to the store, buying something to ordering everything online, right? So, so true. Is, you know, this, the poor shipping people are like way overworked. And so most of the time, if you're shipping 40 boxes worth of t-shirts, the 40 boxes are not going to all arrive at the same place at the same time that you need them to. Right. So, uh, you know, it's, it's crazy, man. Our last us tour, we, we just had this like ongoing thing, just like with, um, like this kick drum head, we called it the cursed kick drum head. And it's like, and we had a box of uh, records, you know, that it would get to the venue that we played like the night before. And it was just like we kept leapfrogging, the, you know, these records that just ended up just like, it, you know, they never made it to a venue. So we were ne never able it's to insane. sell them. And, it's like, and it, again, like we were doing everything right. It's just the reality of the world is um, overnight shipping is no longer overnight. <laughs> My final question for you today, and I ask this to everyone that comes on the podcast, is I allow the artist that comes on to choose the final piece of music that's played on the episode. So it can be any band by, sorry, any piece of music or any song by any band, but something that means a lot to you. And I think that keeps the episodes quite fresh and original because everyone chooses something different. But hmm. what what's a song that you love that after today's episode is edited and out there for the world to listen to? you want wow, to be played it's... that means something to you and bands find it hard you know i'm putting a time limit on for you but one song that really really means a lot to you that when i asked the question maybe came to your head and heart first i probably xanadu by rush man yeah uh, that song cha changed my life like when i was 14 that's the first time like to me that's magic um truly magical it's it just it transports you to a, a different uh time and place truly and um that song's the reason why I'm playing music for a living, you know? That's a hell of a good reason. And we've talked about Rush a lot today, but uh, even though they're huge, even though they've sold out arenas, even so, you know, they're, they're probably millionaires, they always seem humble. They always seem like nice people and you never hear shit yeah. about them. So that's, that's a good blueprint to be if you are going to be in a band. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, totally. And like, that's, you know that song's the first time I registered what a synthesizer was, right? It opens up with the, yeah. that Taurus, you know, drone, and you know, I've got all the the wood blocks outside and the birds chirping, and it's just, you know, that was the first time I'd really heard music that sounded so open, and um, yeah, it's just um, such a special, such a special piece of music, man. I really appreciate your time coming on the podcast today. And I really hope that something in the world changes that allows you to come to the UK. I know you came, I think yeah, it was man. last year to London for a one-off show. Um, yeah. 
Yeah, we uh, did uh, a few. We did a few shows there. We did like yeah, uh, was the the Great Escape. We did at that uh, in Brighton. We did a few shows for that, and then yeah, we did the uh, Omira in London, and that was a, that was a great show, man. Uh, a bunch of our gear just you know did not like the English power. Uh, you know, a lot of stuff was going. On. I think I blew up uh, two of my amps at that show it was totally worth it that was a lot of fun so uh hopefully next time i'll, I'll only be playing english amplifiers uh when I, next time we're over there but don't leave it too long it'd be awesome to have a beer with you meet you in the flesh you know i really hope things change that people because otherwise bands just are going to stop coming over here and that'll just suck so oh yeah like we we love it over there man it just feels um it, it felt like we really arrived there where um the kind of music we play is not as accepted and celebrated i guess in canada is the way you know but going over there and talking to people everyone have like king crimson shirts genesis shirts and we're talking about frip we're talking about you know where peter gabriel grew up and it just felt like um it's it was like the it's the mecca of the music that inspires us so much and so it just it felt uh really really special to be there so Hopefully we'll get there, you know, very soon. If not this year, definitely next year. Uh, again, just figuring out budgets and trying to make it work financially and, you know, get over there and not lose our shirts is the biggest thing. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. I've really enjoyed this chat and uh, you're more than welcome whenever you want to come back on. Um, I feel like we could talk for hours, if I'm honest. Yeah, man, me too. Me too. It's really nice to talk to you, Mark. So there it is. There's my interview with me and the amazing Kevin from the awesome band Crownlands. Like I said at the start of today's interview, I really hope by the end of today's interview, you guys are all now like, do you know what? I'm going to go and listen to them. Please do. They will blow your mind and easily be one of your favourite bands and probably one of your dad's favourite bands because they sound from that era, like I said, like bands like Led Zeppelin and the incredible Rush and truly I really don't think there'll be anyone out there that doesn't absolutely admire, respect and adore this band. Listen to the album Fearless, then go and listen to Live at White Sands, that will blow your mind and then spend a whole night on YouTube watching all their live videos. It's the best way you can spend an evening, pull yourself a whiskey and you will not regret it. And do you know what, if you go and check them out and you love them, please go on markandme.com and let me know. I love it when I suggest a book or a band or a film to someone through this podcast. You go and check it out and you fall in love like I do. That's the best compliment this podcast can get. You know what to do by now. If you've enjoyed today's episode, go on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram and share, share, share. Hit the retweet button, hit the share button, put it as your story on Instagram. All the links are on markandme.com and honestly, it goes a really, really long way. Also, if you really want to go that extra mile for Mark and me, I have a Patreon account. Each and every month, I give exclusive episodes just for you guys out there who support me on there. Also, I give you some stickers, badges, and basically try and do a newsletter as often as I can. And I'm working really hard behind the scenes to make Patreons feel really loved, really special. And honestly, please keep supporting me on there. It goes so, so far. 
This week as well on iTunes and or Apple Podcasts or whatever it's called this week, you can go on there and you can subscribe to the podcast. It's free 99 a month. That is nothing. You can't even get a Big Mac meal for that. You can't. You genuinely can't. So for that, you're going to get two episodes every week. You're going to get exclusive episodes as well, like the Patreon people. And it really goes a long way. And I've made it so, so easy on Apple. You just hit the subscribe button and they'll take free 99 Please, all that support goes right back into the podcast. I don't make any money off this. You should know that by now. I do it for the love of the podcast and it will always remain that way. And what I'll do with that money is go and travel the country, go to festivals over the summer. You may have seen this week I'm announced at 2000 Trees, Slam Dunk and so much more. And this will allow me to record more interviews for you guys at home. So it's win-win, but I can't do it without your support. I'll be back, hopefully, if I don't go back into hospital, with a brand new episode in only a few days' time. So until then, look after yourself, listen to Crownlands, and I'll speak to you all very soon.
Stand within the pleasure dome.